Welcome to the Innovation Engine Podcast. I'm Will Sherlin, and on this week's episode, we'll be talking about the power of productive thinking. We'll look at why the act of thinking can actually be physically demanding, how to avoid things like monkey mind, gator brain, and the elephant's tether, and the six steps in the productive thinking process. Here with us today to discuss those topics and more is Tim Herson, one of the world's leading experts on corporate innovation. Tim is the author of Think Better, An Innovator's Guide to Productive Thinking, and co-author of Never Be Closing, How to Sell Better Without Screwing Your Clients, Your Colleagues, or Yourself. Throughout his career, Tim has helped Fortune 500 and FTSE 100 organizations in the U.S., Canada, and the U.K. create innovation, marketing, new product, and workplace transformation programs. He's a founding partner at ThinkX Intellectual Capital, an innovation consulting firm that teaches productive thinking, a core skill for developing new products and processes, new organizational structures, new marketing and business strategies, and solving problems in general. Welcome to the podcast, Tim. Well, thank you. Well, I'm looking forward to it. Absolutely. Us as well. So, Tim, let me start off by asking about an anecdote in the book that I thought was very interesting, and it's that thinking is actually hard work physically. So you cited a stat in the book that chess masters sweat out 7 to 10 pounds of fluid during a two-hour chess match. What is going on physically in our bodies to make that happen? Kind of cool, isn't it? Yeah. So, so we've got this little lump of, of, of flesh inside our heads, and it weighs approximately 3%, of, 3 to 5%, depending, of most people's body mass. Okay? Mm-hmm. And yet it consumes up, up to 20% of the oxygen, the nutrition, the uh, energy that we take in so that right away you've got a dramatic disparity you know three percent of mass twenty percent of actual resource that's being used it's interesting that it used to be thought and in 2008 it still was thought uh, as I understand it that the more you thunk the more you (laughs) the more you used actually doesn't work that way at all it turns out that the chess the chess master thing is really about emotional energy, and the the sweating that goes on there is that there's actually your, the, their bodies are grinding away at at emotional uh, at emotional energy, and they get exhausted just the way we all get exhausted from emotional uh, expenditure. It, the, the the level of thinking that the brain, the level of energy that the brain consumes when it's doing those really, really difficult tasks and the tasks that are just you know, daydreaming, turns out not to be a whole lot different from that 20% that I mentioned. But the key is, the key is that no matter how you're using your brain, it's consuming an enormous amount of energy, an enormous amount of energy. And even a fluctuation of two or 3% makes a big difference. So, there's a scientist by the name of, of, of Kahneman who wrote a book, book and some of your users or, or your listeners may know about it. It's called Thinking Fast, Thinking Slow. And what he says is more or less the same thing that I say in, in, in my book. We tend to conserve 
not our energy as we measure it in kilojoules, but our, our, our emotional energy, our gut energy, by taking the easy path when we're thinking. Mm-hmm. And that's what he calls the thinking fast uh, approach. And the thinking slow approach, that's when we have to grind away at things. And it's emotionally exhausting. It deprives us, us of a great deal of pleasure. It has a great deal of reward attached to it. But it's hard to do. So what we do is we tend to take the path of least resistance. That's why we follow the path of doing what we've always done. So so on that front, the second chapter in your book is titled Monkey Mind, Gator Brain, and Elephant's Tether. So what are those three roadblocks to productive thinking, and how can people out there that are listening get around them? Okay. So th- these are cool, and, 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 and we all experience them. So monkey mind, that's the inability to concentrate. That's, uh, you know, when, uh, when Buddhist monks who are practicing meditation talk about not being able to focus, what they talk about is having monkey mind. And the images of monkeys, you know, swinging through trees from tree to tree to tree. And it's exactly the same as what we do. You know, our minds swing from idea to idea to idea. Some of them make sense. Some of them don't make sense. Some of them are half ideas. Some of them are absurd. But we, we, we have a hard time thinking about a single thing. In a sense, you can say your mind has a mind of its own. You try to focus. You try to fo- concentrate. You try to read a book. And suddenly you're reading those words. The words are going by your eyes. And you look up and you say, my goodness, I don't even know what I just read. Because your head was somewhere else. So that's monkey mind. Mm-hmm. Gator brain, and I'll come back to how to deal with it in a sec, but let me talk about what they actually are. Gator brain is that tendency we have to judge things really, really quickly, to to get our judgment uh, machine going really fast. And often it is in uh, in situations where there's a kind of an emotional stress. So here's, here's a good example of that. You're at the fast checkout counter at a supermarket. And um, you, you, you happen to see the person in front of you has not 10 packages in their you know, basket, but 13 packages. And so immediately you have this weird reaction, which is this angry, you know, who the hell does that guy think he is kind of reaction. You're talking about three packages worth of difference. It actually doesn't make a lot of sense. But our gator brain, our fight or flight brain, because that's what it is. It's that reptilian brain that responds to danger or what it perceives as danger with a dramatic either fight or flight response kicks in. And we get into this zone of what we sometimes call the zone of uncontrolled thought where we're not thinking at all. We're just reacting. We're just reacting. Now, where that plays in, a cre- in the creative world is everybody's had the experience. You sit in a meeting and you, you're brainstorming or whatever it is and your, your buddy comes up with an idea. And the first thing that happens in your head, the first thing that happens in your head is you say, what a crappy idea that is. Because it's not yours, because it's a different thing. It's a stranger. It's invading, in a sense, your territory in the same way that an animal might invade the gator's swamp. So this gator brain, this instant judgment, is a real problem, particularly when it comes to evaluating other ideas, also sometimes when it comes to evaluating other people. The elephant's tether is, comes from the notion of the way elephants in uh, India, in uh, 
the 17 to 1800s, and I think they still do it a little bit today, but not as much, were trained. And what they used to do is they used to take a baby elephant and they used to take a heavy piece of chain or, 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 or um, hemp rope and tie it quite tightly around the front leg of the elephant. And then the other end would be banged into, would be uh, attached to a stake, stake that was banged into the ground really, really uh, solidly. So every time the little baby elephant tries to move, kind of like a dog with a choke chain on, the chain or the rope would squeeze the leg, it would hurt, and the elephant learns not to pull against it because it's very uncomfortable. Now, big elephants who could pull the stake out of the ground, who could you know, probably you know, break a piece of rope quite easily, tend not to do that because they've been trained their entire lives not to pull against this weird resistance that they feel around their legs. They've learned to do something that could be so easily undone. They're, they're trapped not by the actual tether, but by their, their imagination, their image of what that tether is. And again, in the same way, we as human beings find that we're, we're often doing things, not because they're the right things to do, not because they're the best things to do, but because they're the common things to do, the things that we've learned. So each of those things, you can see how they would inhibit us from thinking in a focused way, thinking in a non-judgmental way, and thinking in a new way to try to come up with new ideas. So let's go from the back. How do you overcome uh, the elephant's tether, the syndrome of the elephant's tether. Well, you do it with courage. What you have to do is you have to if emotionally, in your head, break those tethers that are holding us back and try the new. You have to be aware enough to have the sense that this is happening, that there could be another possibility, there could be another way of doing things. And even if it isn't the best possible way or the right way, Simply experimenting with that way could allow you to break the tether. And we don't know what the results are going to be. They could be great. They could not be great. But if we don't ever try, it's kind of like the Wayne Gretzky thing of, you know, you, 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 you miss 100% of the shots that you don't take. So you want to take those things. You want to have the courage. And that's what it takes to break the elephant's tether is courage. The gator brain, what it takes is a different thing entirely. The gator brain, it takes the pause. It takes that moment not to react to someone else's idea or to someone else's suggestion or someone else's person, but to pause just before that judgment thing comes out of your mouth. And one of the things that happens, or just forms in your head, doesn't mean you don't have to speak it. And one of the things that happens there is that you could still hate the idea that has been put on the table, but at least now you're just hating the idea and not the fact that somebody's just mentioned something that wasn't yours. And there's a big difference between that. So just pausing and allowing yourself a moment for your head to catch up with itself in a sense is a good idea. And I talk about head catching up with itself because it's purely physiological. The fact that gator brain is not something that you can do anything about. It's a physiological thing. And the reason is because the signals that go into your, into your body through your senses actually go through your reptilian brain, that, that stem brain, that fight or, fright, fight or flight brain, faster and reach it faster than they do your cortical brain, your, you know, your judgment-making brain. 
So what happens, and you can prove this to yourself, what happens is you're driving down the street and um, a, a, a ball comes out between two cars and you jam your foot on the brake and you miss, fortunately, the kid who's following the ball and you're, you're sitting in your car, you know that you didn't think about braking. That was a gut reaction. It was a gut reaction. And then your hands are, are sitting on the, on the steering wheel and they're probably shaking a bit because you had an emotional reaction. It was the second thing that happens and it's purely physiological. You're, the, 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 the nerves went to your stem brain and then went to your limbic system, that's the emotional part, and only then, fractions of a second, microseconds later, do they go to your cortical brain, your thinking brain, and you say, damn kids, or something of that, uh, to that effect. So what you do by pausing is you interrupt that circuitry and you allow your brain literally to catch up with itself so that you, now you can make a judgment, not from your gator brain, not from your emotional brain, but hopefully from your human brain. Now, I know this is going on a, a, a while, Will, but I love this stuff, so talk, you know, stop me if you, if you think it's going too far. But the next piece is the monkey brain. So the cool thing about monkey brain is we often think of it as a distraction, and yet if you could harness monkey brain, wouldn't that be cool? How many people who are listening to this program have had the very best ideas they've ever had in their lives in the shower? Probably a lot. In fact, we've done surveys and we find that if you ask people to write down three places where they get their best ideas, there's a 67% chance that one of those three places people are going to say in the bathroom or in the shower. So what happens is that you're all relaxed, you're all loose, the judgment thing is, 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 has kind of gone away because there's nice warm water and you're just thinking about thought after thought after thought after thought and they're great thoughts. But you walk out of the shower and even though you had the greatest idea you ever had in your life, you can't remember it by the time you dry off. So wouldn't it be great if you could find a way to actually use monkey mind to recall that information so that you could now use it and it wasn't just daydreaming stuff that disappeared from you. And the way to do that, literally, the way to do that is to take notes. Now you say, how do you take notes in a shower? Well, it's not so easy, but we're but, but, but you can have you know, little recording devices, you can write on the wall, you can, you can you know, speak your notes into, into a, um, your iPhone when you're driving. All of those kinds of things are possible to do, but the key is to write stuff down. There's a wonderful old Chinese proverb that says the weakest ink, the weakest ink is better than the strongest memory. And I think it's true. All you have to do is write this stuff down. And if you train yourself to write stuff down, here's the other thing that happens. Natural philo uh, psychological principle, one of, the, one of the most important psychological principles is you get more of what you reinforce. We know that. We know that from animal studies. We know that from human beings. So if you reinforce the having of ideas by writing them down when you have them, guess what happens? You get more of them. It's the simplest thing that anybody can do to become more creative. Write things down. Pretty, pretty basic, isn't it? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and yet, look at the geniuses that, that we celebrate you know, these days. Leonardo da Vinci is as celebrated for his notebooks as he is for his art, his inventions, his philosophy. Thomas Edison is as celebrated, maybe not quite as much, but pretty darn close 
for his notebooks than as he was for the for the actual work he, he did. And both of those people will tell you that without those notebooks, I mean, they can't tell you because they're no longer alive, obviously, but without those notebooks, those ideas would not exist. They would not exist. Write it down. All right. That feeds nicely into the next question that that I thought was was a fantastic story you told in the book, and it was about the space pin, because I think that's that's one area of the space race where the, the U.S. may have actually lost to the Russians. <laughs> so how, how did the space pin come to be? And even though it was a you know, feat of modern engineering, how was it actually a loss for the U.S. by most rational ways of thinking? <laughs> okay, I should introduce this by saying there's a lot of debate about how true this story is. Uh, I have seen um, you know pros and go- and cons about it on the web. If you go to Snopes.com, you'll find you know one story. You'll actually find both stories. You both find the true story and the not true story, and they even tell you that you know, who knows. Right? Right. So so with that in mind, yes, the story is that. Um, when the first astronauts went up into space, when John Glenn and, and Alan Shepard went up into space, they had to record things by hand at that time because they didn't have the computer, computer capacity to record things. And one of the things that happens when what happened when they were in zero gravity environments is that their pins didn't work. Literally, their pins didn't work because there was no gravity. And there wasn't sufficient capillary action to pull the ink down. So the problem is, you know, sent to some scientists at NASA who, you know, subcontracted to other people to try to solve the problem to get a pen that can write in zero gravity. And, you know, you probably see in the magazine still you can, in your airline magazine, buy the space pen that writes upside down and writes, you know, in swimming pools underwater and all that kind of stuff. And supposedly it cost about $3 million of 1965 or thereabouts dollars to design and develop this space pen. That's a lot of money. Uh, If you translate it into money these days, I think it would be at least 10 times the amount of money. The Russians, but it was beautiful. It worked. The Russians solved the same problem by giving their astronauts pencils. So whether this story is true or not, and I I think that there's probably grains of truth in it and and maybe exaggerations in it, Mm -hmm. but here's the key. The key is that these two organizations ask themselves fundamentally different questions. NASA asks itself the question, how can we get a pen that writes in space? And the Russians ask themselves a question, how can we write in space? There's two or three words difference in those two questions. But those two or three words difference are enormous because on the one hand, you already have the technology and it costs you nothing. And on the other hand, you develop something that's kind of cool, no question, but it costs you $3 million. And where might you have spent that $3 million a little bit better? So the way you ask questions becomes a critical factor in the types of ideas that you come up with. Yeah, definitely. So so let me ask you about some of the nuts and bolts of, of productive thinking and uh, there, there are two elements of productive thinking that you lay out, creative thinking and critical thinking. And you think it's imperative that they be separated from one another. So can you go a little bit into creative thinking and critical thinking and talk about why that separation is necessary? 
Yeah. Some people call it what I call creative thinking. They call it uh, div divergent thinking. And it's the ability to come up with lots of ideas. It's kind of like that shower thinking that I talked about earlier. It's just idea after idea after idea after idea rather than stopping at the first idea that seems somehow plausible. You know, I, we do a lot of... Uh, uh, facilitations with with companies who are trying to come up with new products or or different business models or or, or even you know marketing strategies and one of the things that happens is that people kind of get locked into their first right idea somebody will come out onto the table and they'll say well how about we do this and everybody will say yo that's a great idea you know finally after rejecting a whole bunch um, uh, of wrong quote in quotes ideas and they'll get hung up on this first right idea. And yet, it's so clear that there's a second right idea, there's a third right idea, there's a, probably a hundredth right idea, if only you remain open to it. So what happens is, if you close down on that first right idea, and don't give yourself the opportunity to even think of subsequent right ideas, you're not going to be particularly particularly creative. And one of the reasons people say that they hate brainstorming is that people will come out of brainstorming, so-called brainstorming meetings, and they'll say, geez, we spent a whole hour? We spent a whole hour and that's what we came up with? Well, yeah, it is what you came up with because you didn't go further. So the creative thinking is the generation of idea after idea after idea after idea, no matter how absurd they are. Don't judge them. Don't evaluate them. Don't stop thinking. Keep going. And there's a lot of good, ev good evidence, this is like academic evidence, that suggests that if you have a, an ideation session, uh, you can kind of divide it into thirds. You can say the first third of that session is probably going to be ideas that everybody's already had. There's nothing new that comes out on the table at all. But it's important to get it out because you kind of, it's kind of like you know, a Venturi valve in a car. You're creating a vacuum and that vacuum is going to get filled with something in your head. It's, it's in your head. And so the next bunch of ideas that come out, they're a little bit more abstracted from reality because they're not relying on what you actually know or the ideas that you actually had before. They're a little bit more experimental, a little bit more risky. And the third third of ideas, those are the ideas that literally are Wiley e. Coyote walking off the edge of the cliff. There's no basis for them whatsoever. They're kind of wild. They're kind of crazy. They're kind of insane. And yet it's in those ideas, time after time after time, when we're working with companies, that's where the gems are. That's where the gold is. And at first, they often seem absurd. There's that wonderful line from Einstein, isn't it? You know, if at first... If at first an idea doesn't seem absurd, there's no hope for it. Well, I think there's a lot of truth in that. So the creative thinking is getting to that third third of ideas. And that's where the magic happens. That's where the stuff is. Mm -hmm. So you have to get there. So if you impose the judgment, which is the critical thinking, onto, those, onto that part of the process, you're going to stop at the first right idea or maybe the second right idea. You're not going to get there. So what you need to do is you need to separate these two activities, the judging critical activity, because it's just as important once you come up with a set of ideas that you really want to evaluate, judge the hell out of it. You know, be rigorous, be ruthless with those ideas, but only after they've been allowed to surface. 
So that's the difference between the creative and the critical thinking, or some people call it, as I said, divergent thinking and convergent thinking. I don't like those words because they kind of sound too academic to me. Mm -hmm. So creative and critical in, in my view. And you impose your critical thinking only when it's time to do so. You don't, you don't not think critically. You've got to think critically. You just hold it back for the time that it takes you to generate those interesting, weird, crazy, insane sometimes ideas so you can begin to look at them properly. Yeah, definitely. So so maybe we should have started with this question, Tim, but I'd like to think that maybe we've just been building up to it all along. Let's talk about the productive thinking model because it's a model that you've put, I'm sure, years into, and it's a six-step process that's meant to improve on the normal three-step process of thinking. So can you talk a little bit about the normal three-step process and then share the different steps of the six-step productive thinking process? Yeah, it turns out that the way human beings approach problems, and it might even be the case with animals too, we're thinking now, but it turns out that the way we, we approach problems is pretty simple. We see a problem, we think of a solution, we do something. Three steps, see the problem, think of a solution, do something. And you, you, you know that that's true when you imagine, for example, being in a restaurant and getting a spot of spaghetti sauce on your tie, if you're wearing a tie. Uh, how often have people reached for you know, their napkin, put the corner of it in the, in, the, in the glass of water that they've got on the table and start to you know, see if they can fix the spot on the tie? Even smart people do that. Even people who know that oil and water don't mix, even people who have had the experience of doing it before hundreds of times and know that it doesn't work will do this weird kind of ritual with themselves. I do it myself. See the problem, pick a solution, do something. So wouldn't it be great if you could take that natural approach that we have to problems, which works a lot of the time, but also doesn't work a lot of the time, and simply refine it. Wouldn't it be great if on the see the problem third of that three-step process, you could see the problem more clearly? Wouldn't it be great if you had a bunch of tools that allowed you to really understand what the problem was so that you could address it in a more effective, in a more effective manner? And one of the things that I see when I work with corporations all over the world is I see tons and tons of people spending tons and tons of time working on the wrong problems. And a lot of your listeners are probably sitting there saying, yeah, that happens in my company too. We're always working on the wrong problem. It doesn't matter you know, how good the solution is if it's the wrong problem. Well, same thing. Great answer, wrong question. You've got to get the question right, and that means understanding the problem. So what productive thinking does, and I'll come back to this in a sec, is it expands the number of steps in that first third of the process so that we can see the problem more clearly and give ourselves a better, a, a better opportunity, a better chance, no guarantee, but a better chance of addressing the right part of that problem. Pick a solution. The other thing that we do in that second part, that pick a solution, is we don't pick a solution. We just come up with the first solution, right? And then we do that. And that's that reach into the, into the glass thing. But there's probably other solutions. There's reach into the glass thing. Yeah, there's, you know, there's, uh, you know, lick your finger. Probably not a good one, but it's, a, but it's an alternative, isn't it? Mm -hmm. um, we had an experience, my partner and I, where um, I had a business partner who, who uh, was at a business meeting once and she was wearing a, um, a white sweater 
And uh, she, exactly that thing happened to her. She got a drop of spaghetti sauce on it. It's a big, important business meeting. She could have looked like a fool and did, done the whole routine that we all do. Instead, what did she do? She said, what's the problem here? The problem here is not that there happens to be a spot on my, on my, my white sweater. The problem is that it's going to distract people. It's going to be even more of a problem if I put water on it and it, start, and it starts spreading the thing. So what else can I do? And the solution she picked was to go into the bathroom, into the ladies' room, to take off her. She was wearing a, a, a jacket on top of the sweater, like a suit jacket. She took that off. She took the sweater off. She turned the sweater front to back. She put the, her, her jacket back on and she walked out as though she had a completely you know, clean clean sweater on. Nobody noticed. Nobody didn't notice. She solved the problem because she recognized that the problem was not about the spot. The problem was about the relationship that she was going to have with the people around the table. So she chose alternative solutions or she looked at alternative solutions and she chose a good one. Usually we don't do that. Pick a solution. We pick the first one. Wouldn't it be great if you had a bunch of tools which allowed you to choose to first generate and then choose the possibility of better solutions. And finally, the do something. Very often what will happen is we'll do something, but we won't do it well. We won't do it in the most efficient way, the most elegant way, the most productive way. So wouldn't it be great, again, if we had tools that allowed us to, to, to plan fully and carefully um, implement our solutions in a way that they would work. So what the productive thinking process does is it tries to take each of those three segments, see the problem, pick a solution, do something, expand them, provide tools to see things more clearly, to create more options, and to generate better implementation plans towards those solutions. Okay, got it. And, and the six steps of the productive thinking model are? They are. Uh, the first one, uh, and I'll, so this is within the, the third that is um, see the problem. We say, what's the itch? And we, we don't even talk about problem. We, what we want to do is we want to dig kind of deeper into that. So we talk about um, uh, trying to find out what's actually going on. And so the first step is called what's going on. Mm -hmm. And the, the, the underlying thing is to find out what's the nature of the itch. What's the thing that's causing discomfort? And to really examine it so that we can come out of that stage and say, yeah, this is this is." the thing that we have to address. This is the issue, or sometimes plural, these are the issues that we have to address. Uh, second uh, stage of the productive thinking model, also within that big cluster called see the problem, is uh, called what's success. And in what's success, we take a look at the, the situation and say, well, what would success look like? What would it feel like? What would it have to do in order for us to be successful? And we do that on two levels, both an emotional level, what does success you know, feel like? What, what is the, the affect of success? And also, what would it look like? What would it actually be like, the more cognitive side? And we, and we really, really analyze and we come up with some powerful success criteria so that we know what we're actually aiming at. And then the final step that's in that still looking at the problem set section, it's because there's, there's three of the six that go, all go into there, and that third one is called what's the question. And this is the part where we say, okay, we understand the problem, 
We understand where we want to go. We don't know what the solution is, but we understand where we want to go. What are the questions that we're going to have to be able to answer well in order to get to the future that we envision? We sometimes call it future pull, the future that we want to get to. So first step, uh, what's going on? Second step, um, what's success? Third step, what's the question? Fourth step now is generate answers. And now we're talking about, we're getting into the area of that three, that three part model that I talked about earlier of pick a solution. First, we have to generate a whole bunch of solutions and using creative and critical thinking, we generate not one solution, but a whole bunch of solutions. And there are many tools and techniques, some of which we've developed, some of which exist uh, from, from other thinkers on the subject. De Bono has a whole bunch of them. Uh, there's, there, there are many, there are hundreds and hundreds of idea generating techniques and tools and so on. And that's what you do in the generate answers section. That's the fourth section of the product of the six step productive thinking model. The fifth is actually my favorite and, uh, it's, it's about forging the solution. In fact, that's what we call it, forge the solution. And what you do is you take the most promising of the ideas that you've developed in generate answers, and you literally put them into a forge. You beat them up. You burn them. You you you, you manipulate them. You you torture test them literally to see how effective these ideas might be if you put them into actual use. And in that process, you whittle down uh, the uh, let's say five or six ideas that seem to have some promise into one or two ideas which really are robust, really have the possibility of success. And then you move to the sixth step, which is uh, how do you create a, a platform for action? Um, and, and, and that's where you do some uh, resource planning, uh, you, you allocate responsibilities, you put timelines. It's like a mini uh, project management, first step in a project management approach. So that you come out of this six step pro uh, process with a plan of action that is based on a solution that has been uh, at least pilot tested that in turn has been based on a whole bunch of possible solutions from which you chose the best, which in turn has been based on a series of questions that you really think are drilling right down to the core of the problem, which in turn has been based on an understanding of where you want to go, what your success criteria are which in turn has been based all the way back to the first step of the, of, of, of the process on really and truly understanding and identifying that thing, that itch, which is causing you discomfort. Okay, great. So we're, we're getting a little low on time, Tim. Uh, any final parting words of wisdom for listeners out there that may be looking at ways to improve their productive thinking abilities to boost innovation capacity? It's not like I haven't talked enough here. <laughs> like you get me on a roll, and I I just don't know when to stop. I know. Um, final words of wisdom. Yes, uh, I don't. I hope, I hope they're wise. I'm not sure they are. Um, for, for for me, the whole thing, or one of the one of the bedrock principles, is the principle of of possibility. You know, we you you can learn all the tools and all the techniques and all the architecture underneath the stuff. But if you don't have the basic sense that there's always a way out, there's always a way through, there's always a solution, there's always something better, uh, none of the mechanics are going to help you. I, I really think that there's a, an attitude uh, 
an attitude that says that uh, impossible just means that nobody's done it yet. And, and, and if you've got that, then you're more than halfway there. Then the tools are helpful, then they're useful. But unless you understand that impossible is not a concrete thing, not a fact, it's only, it's only a moment in time, and all it means is that it hasn't been done yet. That's the important thing. That's the important thing. Yeah, so, so dream big and write things down if you take two things from this podcast episode. <laughs> Those would be good. <laughs> <laughs> nice. Well, Tim, that's great advice and, uh, and a great note to close on. Thanks so much for joining us today. Great talking with you about the benefits of productive thinking. Well, thanks a bunch. I had fun and I hope uh, people find it useful. Absolutely. If you'd like to learn more about Tim Herson, you can do so on his company's website at www.thinkxic.com. You can also visit never-b-closing.com to read up on his latest book. You can follow Tim on Twitter at at Tim underscore Herson, that's H-U-R-S-O-N, and both of his books, Think Better, An Innovator's Guide to Productive Thinking, and Never Be Closing, How to Sell Better Without Screwing Your Clients, Your Colleagues, or Yourself, are available on Amazon.com and in bookstores around the world. Thanks once again to Tim Herson for joining us this week, and thank you for joining us this week. Don't forget to tune into next week's episode, which will be a milestone of sorts for us here at the Innovation Engine Podcast, episode number 50. We're excited to welcome Three Pillars CEO David DeWolf back into the studio, and we'll be turning the tables. He will be interviewing me. We'll be doing a little bit of a retrospective on what we've learned over the course of the first 50 episodes or first 49 episodes of this podcast. So don't miss out. Tune in next week for episode number 50 of the Innovation Engine. Thanks again for joining us, and we'll see you next week. The Innovation Engine podcast is recorded, produced, edited, and published each week by Three Pillar Global, a product lifecycle management and software development company based in Fairfax, Virginia. For more information on the company or our services, please visit our website at www. 3